Welcome to Frontier 3, presented by PatSnap. In this 20-episode podcast series, we'll be unpacking the innovation ecosystem of Web3. From tokenized physical goods to the digital assets and smart contracts that will build the metaverse, Web3 is one of the biggest technological and socioeconomic paradigm shifts in history. Join PatSnap's co-founder, Ray Chohan, for a fascinating deep dive into how Web3 will fundamentally change how we live, work, and play. Welcome to Frontier 3. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to episode four of Frontier 3, presented by PatSnap. In today's episode, our host, Ray Chohan, sits down with Jens Siebert. Jens is a blockchain and digital banking enthusiast with a focus on digital assets, Web3, and privacy. He's a regular speaker, panelist, and expert to the German parliament on digital securities, and has industry expertise in financial services with a deep understanding of marketplace financing. If you enjoy Web3, which I'm sure you do listening to this podcast, you're absolutely going to love today's episode with Jens Siebert. Enjoy. Today's episode is brought to you by PatSnap. Learn how to unlock your limitless innovation potential with connected innovation intelligence. CII is an AI-powered technology that comes through millions of disparate data points, segments them by industry and relevance, and weaves the insights together to create a meaningful narrative. The result? A holistic 360-degree market view where you can easily spot risks, identify opportunities, and accelerate the pace of innovation. We created the definitive guide to connected innovation intelligence to give you an in-depth understanding of how CII can help your business innovate better. If you want to grab a copy of this, head over to patsnap.com or click the link in the description of this podcast to get it today. Now, without further ado, let's jump right into today's episode. Welcome, Jens. Really excited to have you on the show today. Uh, I think before we started today's conversation, we were going down various different rabbit holes, but would love to kick off with your background and story, because we always find it fascinating how we speak to all these leaders who end up down the rabbit hole of Web3 and blockchain and everything within this new solar system. So I would love to hear your backstory and how you ended up as COO and co-founder of Investor DAC and, and focusing on the world of Web3 ends. Thanks for having me, Ray. It's a pleasure. Um, yeah, I'm really excited discussing Web3 with you today. And yeah, maybe a quick background. So what brought me into this topic? You know, I'm I'm working as a senior in, in, in various senior product management roles for many years. Um, however, my, you know, my, my educational background is a bit more in economics. And I think combining those two, you know, being close to the tech, and also having a strong economic focus is something that helps a lot diving deeper into, into Web3. And um, yeah, I hold a master's degree from Rotterdam School of Management. And as you said, today I'm co-founder and COO of Investor. And at Investor, we are one of the biggest crowdfunding platforms in continental Europe. We have teams in Finland, Germany, and Austria at the moment. And I think coming from the crowdfunding space, you know, we have been in love with peer-to-peer services that work with low or no involvement of intermediaries 
for quite a while. You know, that's kind of the core of our business model, right? Bringing people together, investors and companies that are seeking for money. And um, I guess that is what brought me in close touch with Web3 at an early stage. And my feeling is that literally everybody who comes from a peer-to-peer -peer world and background, you know, when when those people get in touch with Web3 for the first time, I have the feeling they fall in love immediately. You know, it's so obvious. And it was also to me somehow an eyes-opening moment when I first experienced the the opportunities that come with a Web3. Thank you for that context, Jens. And and it's interesting. I mean, this pod is really well promoted on LinkedIn. That's It's interesting. When I look at LinkedIn specifically, that's where I spend a lot of my time and also obviously Twitter. But it's interesting on LinkedIn, I still sense, and you can see it from the metrics, the likes, the reshares, the general comments, people are, don't really get it web one web two web three so i think it would be super fruitful for our audience just to set the stage and hear your narrative on framing web one web two and now this new paradigm of web three yeah it's it's good you're saying this, Ray. If I, if I look into my into my social media channels, I have kind of the same experience. If I if I discuss Web three with friends at the bar, is there's still so much confusion out there, right? And I think setting the stage and kind of walking through the important milestones and you know the big phase transitions that the internet and the web has walked through over the past is extremely important to have kind of a common ground here and a good understanding to dive deeper into that topic so let's not start with the web right but let's start with the internet and i think many people sure. often have a problem really getting it sorted out correctly what is the internet here and what is the web so the internet I mean, that's the physical wires, right? And the network protocol um, that gave the computers for the first time the capability to communicate to each other. Um, that started in the 60s, 70s. And um, in the beginning, um, some might remember had a strong academic and also military background. And um, that set kind of the protocol foundation for the web. The web itself, however only emerged in the early 90s. So there was kind of a strong gap in between, between like the internet first evolved and then the web one came out in the early 90s. And the web itself, I think it's important to separate from the internet, could be defined as a document and application layer on top of the internet. And the web one allowed simple pages you know, other applications and probably the most important feature of the Web 1 was the hyperlink that allowed to connect content on the Internet on different pages to each other. The Web 1, however, was characterized by mostly, you know, it was read-only content. We had pages out there. We could consume information. Um, we had um, some simple subscription services like mailing, some online ordering. You could say that Amazon kind of started in the Web 1, although it made a strong phase transition into Web 2. Um, but 
more or less everything happening on web one can be characterized to be rather static, right? And um, then in the in the beginning of the 2000s, the web two, you could say, made this whole thing a lot more dynamic. And for the first time, users were empowered to not just only read, but also to write content and really interact. We, we, we got the social component joining joining the web. And um, what is even more surprising than the whole social media boom, I think, that, that kind of followed in the subsequent was that this literally helped completely new markets and business models to evolve on top of the of the web, um, considering models like Uber and transportation and mobility, Airbnb when it comes to housing and holidays, and of course, social media. And people really started to actively interact and participate with the web too. And that often, you know, I mean, it's all around us, right, on a daily basis. However, and I think that's the important point here, Web2, and more and more people realize this, has one fundamental flaw, I would say. And that's the ad-based business model underlying most of the services um, and platforms that we nowadays use when it comes to Web2. And this, you know, business model in the first moment makes most services in Web2 to appear priceless, right? You have the feeling, I mean... Nobody is paying subscription fee here for Facebook or Twitter, right? And you have the feeling, yeah, that's a priceless service. But that's actually not really true. Um, we pay through our data. And the fact that we accept to be, you know, somehow constantly stimulated by companies and, and, uh, and others on the Internet that, you know, just provide us with ads really customized to our, to our specific behavior uh that 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 uh, and you know that you can that you can see in our day-to-day -day usage of the web and um yeah i think this dynamic component of web 2 that helped to really yeah bring out some exciting new business models and in in many points brought the world more closer to each other yeah has this huge fundamental flaw that yeah it's mostly driven by this ad-based uh, business model underlying most of the services there. Uh, and just pausing there on, on Web2, because you, you hear yeah. this a lot now, especially in the last, what, 12 mm -hmm. months, where people are butchering the Web2 uh, era and saying, oh, yeah, the, the users have become the product. It, it's indirect slavery. Like, it's it's really aggressive now, the kind of some of the, the headlines Uh, on how people try talking to Web2 as this kind of not a good thing for the end user, which I get now with the enablement of a lot of the, the technology around uh, the blockchain and, and that entire computing primitive. But would you say that was an unintentional outcome for Web2? Say, say when things started kicking off in 2005, <clears throat> I like looking at the good side of human nature. Would you say the big four who are involved in owning the major properties in Web2, it was a kind of an accidental outcome. They didn't really intend it or plan it to be that way. It just kind of worked out that way with the natural arc of Web2. 
Yeah, that. that <laughs> I, so, I, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, is the devil out there or is is he not? Right? I mean, that's a good question. I, I, I would try to rephrase it a bit. I, I do not believe like in there was this, you know, dark plan. Yeah, uh, by, by Mark and the others in the, in in the early two thousand, like you know, yeah, sitting yeah. there and saying, "Hey, let's uh, let's build those data monsters." You know, I I I I'm not having this position. You know, I I see good intentions in most of the Web two applications we see out there today. However, and I think that also might be a good transition to what Web three might, you know, change and what most of the users worldwide might benefit from in the future is, you know, we have to understand one important other characterization of the web itself, you know, and this turned out to be truly, you know, important to the whole Web2 development. And that's um, most of the services that we see in Web2 nowadays turned out to be, you know, what we call in economics, natural monopolies. And I guess we need to introduce this economic principle quickly. You know, a, a natural monopoly means that, you know, uh, theoretically speaking, you have the fixed costs of running a service are relatively high compared to the variable costs of serving an additional client. And this sounds very, you know, might be difficult to understand in the first step, but Let's imagine public transportation systems or postal services, gas and electricity networks. All of those are good examples of natural monopolies. You know, building up a whole train network comes with significant investments, right? You need the rails and that costs like a lot of investment is necessary here into the infrastructure. However, as soon as you have the rails, the trains, the stations and so on, um, transporting an additional passenger on your trains comes at literally no extra costs, right? And if you now look into, you know, the huge platform providers in Web2, we see some of the same characteristics. You know, building up Facebook was pr probably quite expensive, right? If we consider today's status of the whole application and the platform. However, serving an additional client costs... Facebook, almost nothing, right? And that's the problem with natural monopolies here is that, as the name already indicates, it's extremely hard for new providers to enter those markets. You know, if there's like one huge player that evolved and that kind of secured most of the market share, it's extremely difficult for, for competitors to step in. And I think this led somehow to a huge level of centralization of the web as we know today. And, you know, to kind of sum it up, I think there was no like really bad intentions in the first step or anything like that. It was just a, a natural transition towards huge centralization driven by this fundamental principle of natural monopolies that we can observe in the, in the today's, yeah, structure and system, how the web web itself works. Yeah, you know, just pausing there, I mean, I could, I completely agree with, with, with your view on that. Where I think it did get slightly nefarious, and some folks would say really nefarious, 
I would say from, say, 2011 onwards, you did have businesses which were trying to build on the big four platforms. Let's look at Facebook, for example. But then Facebook would kind of remove an API, remove direct access to said customer, and then make that business have access via advertising or charging uh, for a particular uh, fee to kind of reinstate what they've built originally on the platform anyway. So that's where I can see where the community did get really upset because they're like, oh, now you're pulling this away. I contributed with user-generated content and now you're kind of rug pulling me because I'm, I've got momentum on your platform. That's where I would say it did get a bit kind of hot and, and, and nefarious. Would you agree, Ant? Totally. I mean, let's let's look a bit deeper into Web two maybe before we move forward to to Web three. And I totally agree. I mean, like all of the big platforms turned out to you know become somehow open ecosystems towards developers and companies. You know, you had exciting new frameworks to 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 develop exciting web applications. Uh, that were were introduced by Google and others. You know, you had strong APIs that allowed you to easily integrate your web shop into Amazon. I mean, there always have been, you know, tendencies to to kind of build ecosystems and you know to 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 facilitate the community around the big platforms. However, you know the the fundamental economic incentive model and also who holds control over, for example, the the Amazon shop API or who holds control over um, frameworks provided to, you know, to to have web applications integrated into into the, the Facebook ecosystem, all of those ultimately stayed with the with the platforms itself, right? And you know if if we if we see web3 today becoming a more and more you know relevant topic that people talk about and that also shapes the you know the opinion of the of a wider public you know i think we will see yeah huge web2 platforms giants to to either have two options right they literally can really open towards a more decentralized own corporate structure and a completely new way to interact with their with their communities. Uh, I think you know Jack Dorsey might be one of the few out there that uh, that might have this openness uh, when it comes to you know making Twitter a more decentralized and 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 less centralized service. Um, and at the same time, they also have yeah. The, the, the other option of kind of you know in increasing control uh, building up walls and kind of trying to ring fence their market position and their you know their uh, the, yeah the assets they have built up over over the past 10 to 15 years and yeah I think it will be extremely exciting to to not just only observe closely what's happening within the web3 community itself but also, what will be the reaction of the huge Web2 providers out there towards this 
this development and um yeah. sometimes i find this even more exciting you know that yeah it's interesting you know this is such a fun point before we go into web3 yeah kind of spending some time in some of the the big juggernauts in web2 mm -hmm. and their play into web3 is interesting so if you look at jack right he's jack dorsey officially resigned um from twitter what, earlier this week or i think it was friday last week he has par in charge now And obviously, he's going to go all in on Square, right? Which is, um, in in essence, a kind of hopefully a, a Web three organization. You can you can kind of see what he's trying to do with Square and and how you can now custody BTC and and some of the other here's your other things that you hear that how Jack Dorsey is all in on in particularly Bitcoin and the Lightning Network and and some of those other protocols around it. But what would be interesting is imagine. So I'm playing a bit of kind of a game theory here, but um, if you if you look at the way that's positioned, you could have Square buy Twitter for the social media layer. Square is a powerhouse payment rail layer with big Web three commitments, right, in its roadmap and kind of now, well, kind of now in terms of some of the products it's launching. You can see them being one of the incumbents to really kind of ape into this opportunity. But originally from the Web2 world, you look at those two assets, uh, Square and Twitter, they're classic Web2. But if you were to make that play, he could be a Web3 juggernaut if they kind of merged and worked together. Because if you look at Twitter, let's face it, I know Twitter drives people nuts, but it's an amazing product. It's an amazing product. So if you had that, that could be one of the old guard making a big play in in Web3, potentially. I yeah, I, yes. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, fully agree. I I just think, you know, in order to, you know, the, and, and then I guess we really, for our listeners, kind of have to have to go a bit into the fundamental principles of what, what Web3 actually is. But I find I find our current discussion so Uh, so so exciting to that I just want to make one one more point on that one sure, I think, you know if it comes to you know the the whole the whole area of organizational theory so how companies and you know teams organize themselves um and the whole web tree development I think is such an exciting topic because more and more organizations consider to really make that phase transition from being a rather traditional hierarchy driven organization that is incorporated as a uh, in some country into you know really making this transition in, into becoming a, a more decentralized organization and you know I, I think you know Twitter and what Jack is now doing with Square you know I think he really would have to make this kind of fundamental decision, you know, giving giving away some of the clear assets of Twitter, like, for example, usernames really to the users, you know, tokenizing those and really making it a more, you know, that you you, you as a client, as a, as a, as a Twitter uh, user, always have the chance to walk away, you know, and, and take your intellectual property all of your, of your legacy and history of what you have done to, to, to another platform, to another provider, if you feel it's the right moment for what reasons soever. I think that's one necessary step. 
But the other, however, at the same moment would be, yeah, to also bring and give a huge organizational transformation to your own, you know, to, to your own organizational setup, you know, possibly transforming into a foundation, you know, trying to lower hierarchies within the organization and, and trying to really, you know, give up on power, you know, and really transforming it into some, some form of incentive model that allows the community and mostly the, the people that use your service to actually get in charge, you know, and give them more than just shareholder voting rights, but really giving them a direct impact on, for example, your, 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 your um, product roadmap and what features should, should be developed next, you know? And um, yeah, I think that's, again, extremely exciting to see that really visionary Web2 providers, if they want to make that transition, some somehow also have to reconsider their whole organizational setup and really have to consider what might be the right form of, you know, involving my community and my users around me to really make my service being valuable to uh, yeah to to wider public and the and the society and also to 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 some point also really giving up on the, on the mostly shareholder value driven um uh, yeah structure that most of those organizations follow today right yeah i couldn't agree more we'll go to web3 literally in in a few seconds but mm. it's yeah, I think you're going to probably have one or two classic Web2 platform players probably do well in that transition. There's got to be one. If it's mm. going to be one, it's going to be Jack Dorsey, I think. Yeah. He's still the founder. He's super smart. He already believes in the values of Web3 anyway. He isn't all about the share price and his personal wealth. You can see that by the way he lives his life. If I was going to bet on one of the, one of the horses, it'd probably be Square and Twitter to do something meaningful because they've got the scale, they've got the balance sheet and Twitter's got a phenomenal audience. So that's one, but another industry who are naturally aping into web three more, we'll go to kind of web, the definition shortly, but also if you look at, sorry, this conversation slightly spun off, but I don't want to move on from this point because this is an interesting part. We've just kind of a rabbit hole we've gone down. But yeah, if you look at the big, brands who are really trying to aggressively move direct to consumer so you look at nike adidas in germany you look at all their earnings calls a big part of their earnings call is um talking about direct to consumer versus retail accounts and every quarter they're trying to demonstrate to the market we're moving the needle on direct to consumer revenue because the margin's better and the customer retention control is a lot better if you look at nfts and you saw we had a, a couple of team members on Adidas who've been on the pod recently, and that episode will come out soon. And literally 24 hours before that episode was recorded, then Adidas on that big announcement, how they kind of made a bet into the NFT world. They've launched Adidas forward slash metaverse, just signaling to the world we're participating. But what's interesting about sports brands and apparel brands, they're already trying to go direct to consumer for the last two, three years anyway, because that's the future. Web3, more particularly NFTs, are potentially an accelerant for that because it's just a win-win. It doesn't, it plays and feeds into the direct-to-consumer plan. So if I were to buy a pair of Adidas trainers, 
as a 21 year old, I get the, the, the physical item, the real world item, but tethered to that item, I get the digital NFT and all the features that's come with that. That just accretes to the direct to consumer business model. So what that means is the big legacy incumbents, there isn't much political friction internally to build an NFT capability within a brand because it already plays to the corporate strategy, which has been set two, three years ago on being aggressive on direct to consumer. So I, I feel there's a number of other industries who naturally have momentum into Web3. And I think sports apparel is is one of them, if that makes sense. I I couldn't agree more. You know, I think kind of mixing the whole NFT topic also into the wider context of Web3. And to me, it's really like, you know, Web3 is like the huge puzzle and, you know, that, that, that can give a really bright picture of the future, you know, and then NFT could be one, you know, one piece of this really huge puzzle within there. But I, I agree, this piece obviously becomes extremely important when it comes to, you know, corporates and, you know, like clubs that have a high brand value. I think literally all industries that invested a lot into brand value, you know, that, that you know, look into your balance sheet and, and, and your profit and loss statement of the last year and look how much you spend on, on brand building activities, you know, and if this makes a huge proportion of your, of your balance sheet, you should definitely consider NFT to be a relevant technology to your, uh, to your organization, because I give you, I give you the short, the, the short explanation why, you know, investing into your brand, let it be Nike, you know, and then just only indirectly monetizing on all those investments into your brand through selling products, mass products, you know, is kind of an inefficient way um, that can be significantly improved if you, if you allow fractional ownership of unique pieces of your brand story and all of what you have built around your brand and i think that's why we see huge incumbents like N nike adidas and others um currently investing so much and moving rapidly into this into this area because it allows for the first time to those brands to really you know nfts in the context of those huge brands for the first time allow a completely new approach of direct-to-consumer interaction that just was not possible in the past. You know, we have seen, um, do you remember those customization of shoes in the in the huge Nike stores? Yep, that, yeah, I remember. Yeah, I mean, that was like five to ten years ago. I do not remember exactly, but, you know, build your unique Nike, you know, and I think we what we currently observe with NFTs here is just a lot, you know, Yeah, the logical next episode of what we have done with our shoes there 10 years ago by customizing them. You know, we get into into unique pieces of, you know, experiencing this brand that those brands, mostly exciting brands that have been built up there over over the the um, the over the past, right? Yeah, and you know what's interesting? I mean, it's a boring accelerant, but it's key. It's people. So you look at all the big brands, build, baking in an NFT, 
NFT capability, it plays into the D2C strategy, which has board sign-off already, right? So you already have C-level buy-in with the big guys. Like, it's a no-brainer to add that to your D2C strategy. And if you've got the right people at middle management. In, in, in the context of an evolving metaverse, this is kind of, it's your new, it, it might be your, your only product to, 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 to monetize on brand value, right? I mean... Uh, you don't. You do not need the the real life shoes and and the the sweater uh, in a in a metaverse context, right? So I I think you really have to consider that you know how much time we are spending in front of screens today, you know, and uh, uh, you know like obviously also driven by the overall pandemic situation of the past two years or so. But you know this whole metaverse discussion, although it's sometimes a bit annoying, but It's a it's a natural fact in life that we spend more and more time um, in within a fully digitalized context and just you know just as we I think you're in London right now and I'm I'm here in Frankfurt you know and that's just normal situation and for all companies carrying a high brand value in the context of a of a metaverse society NFT literally is. Um, the only, uh, you know, the only approach to 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 monetize on their brand value in the long run, and the same holds true for artists and for many others that um, uh, that yeah that build up a reputation or a brand um, and uh, try to to uh, to set up a business model around that. And yeah, D 2 C in the metaverse context uh, only can be. NFT based in the long run, I guess. Um, but obviously, also happy to see what comes up over the next couple of years. Might be new, surprising things coming there. But at the moment, that's my key takeaway on that. Yeah, it's a fascinating space. So now to Web three. Obviously, we covered Web two and mm -hmm. slightly blended into Web three because we got a bit excited. But just for the audience, if you then could define that jump from web two to web three and actually what is web three and yeah sure i mean we first i have to say what a what a lovely discussion and how we just quickly dived into you know like platform business models uh, on the web two on the web two side and also kind of went into into huge brands and d2c models but yeah so what is web three here really i think it's important to you know Coming from the Web 2, we have the huge platforms. We all know them. You know, we have kind of a high level of centralization on the web. We talked about natural monopolies. It's a bit of, like the train systems we see nowadays in, in real life. We have seen those huge platforms to take more and more market shares. And, you know, what we have also seen is the clear separation between providers and users, Right. We have billions and billions of users on the internet, uh, on the web, and uh, we see relatively low number of providers. You know, and if you now remember back to the first days of the of the of the web, you know, it was like all those hello world pages, and literally there was almost no chance to make a dis distinction between who's actually a user of the web and who's a contributor, and I think. That's where Web3 and this fundamental idea comes in. And to to give it a bit more context, I think it's important to, to keep in mind that 
overall Web3 in the first step is an idea or or more like a vision, you could call it. You know, it's not a specific piece of technology, not a specific protocol that you could name. Um, it's more the the idea that novel technology, mostly decentralized technology, will enable us to transform into a more decentralized version of the web as we know today. And this idea of a web where we as users have, where we are winning back control over our data and where we also winning control over the services we are using. That's, um, that's the core of the Web3 idea and the whole movement around there, uh, out there. And um, I, I think it's important uh, to, um, to uh, yeah, how, how can I phrase that? You, you could literally really say that, you know, uh, the vision of a Web3 is more characterized by the general idea of a global liberal, liberalization of the web and breaking those huge natural monopolies that we are seeing out there in the market at the moment. And that we are moving into a setting where we have a significantly more direct interaction of users on the web and that where we see a significantly lower involvement of central intermediaries and central platforms that provide our services. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. So now segueing um, Jens into your day to day in the world mm-hmm. of Web three, like what are you actively doing there at mm-hmm. Investor Deck? Where do you spend your time in terms of as a as a builder within the Web three community? Yeah, good question, and I think it will also help to kind of narrow this you know this whole idea of Web three and kind of give it a bit more context because you know it's always hard this whole web tree you know we we have to see it in a in a larger socio-economic transformation i would say you know it will web tree will have the power to enable completely new forms of business models and as i already said you know we will see completely new forms of how organizations and you know form and how they collaborate you know and the traditional corporate structure will be something that i believe will be less and less important in the future and we will see a lot new forms of organizational collaboration that is less driven by hierarchies and that brings me to the point what we are doing at the moment at investor when it comes to to uh, applying Web3 to our own business model. And I, I, I want to give you an example here. Um, we are within the Nordics. So we are, as I said, we, we, we're doing crowdfunding in, in Germany, Austria, but also in, in the Nordics and in, in Sweden and Finland. And in Sweden and Finland, our business is mostly um, organizing equity placements and equity rounds for exciting growth companies and you might know Republic or Cedars from UK. That's kind of our business that we're doing there in the Nordics. And if we if we provide equity issuances for those companies, 
um, obviously most of those companies are non-stock listed, right? So we issue new shares, investors decide to, uh, to, to invest into those companies. And then we have a service we call owner's portal. And this owner's portal helps us to register those newly generated shares. And nowadays, we still have a centralized database to keep those data. And uh, that brings me to the point where we want to apply Web3. We are currently considering and actually not only considering, but already working on transforming our own owner's portal into let's register all of the shares for companies that we issue um, within investment rounds on our platform on a decentralized ledger. Doing this, we will allow investors to not solely rely on us as a, as a provider, um, as, a, uh, as a company, but they literally can, if they invest 10 shares in some company, um, they have transparency on a public ledger. Uh, we will most likely use Agorand um, for, for this service and they can easily track their ownership on Algorand and um, see their investments. And now let's take like the next step of what does this mean to us as an organization? Uh, obviously, today we are regulated to provide services like managing share registers. If we now transform this service to be reflected on a public ledger, um, we can lower, possibly, possibly we can lower regulatory requirements on our own business model, right? Because I do not need like 10 compliance officers anymore overseeing if my shareholder register that I keep in a centralized database works just fine. You know, I kind of socialize this service i bring it into a decentralized verifiable infrastructure and by doing this i also win opportunities to streamline my own business model and um, to to make us as an organization more efficient on the one hand side and on the other side make us more reliable for all of our users and investors that believe investing through our platform is the right approach to um, to uh, to to yeah to install a good investment strategy for them personally. Okay, so you're just pausing there because this is interesting because I think this is where sometimes people do get lost with the value unlock from adding a Web three capability to what I might describe as a classic crowdsource Web two business, right? Mm. So what you're saying is you're adding a you're working with Algorand, which is for our audience, uh, another one of the, the layer one smart contract platforms. And you're enabling all of the administration, issuance of new shares, people to execute purchase of new shares, all within that kind of web three de decentralized form factor. So what that means for your company directly, I'm guessing is reduced uh, people cost, friction, administrative cost, and for your users, customers, a more efficient, quicker, frictionless way to participate and, and buy shares in, in the companies on your platform. So it's just a slicker, easier way to do it, lying down on the beach, on your smartphone, 
and, and you're done. Is, is, that, is that the real value of your pitch? Yeah, I mean, that's obviously the long-term vision here is to also streamline our operational efficiency. Obviously, we are dealing in a regulated industry. So in the first step, I would say it it adds transparency and verifiability for our users and investors. Obviously, I keep my compliance officers for the time being, you know, and I keep my organizational structures, but I fully agree, you know, and to to kind of, you know, uh, follow up oh, on yeah, that. One, you know? this, this is really important, Jens, because yeah. I hear this a lot in your world. Oh, we're adding verifiability. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean that in the past, you know, we, we you know, we are regulated financial entity you know we are under continuous supervision of um of different uh, national regulatory authorities in uh, in germany and in finland and in austria you know and this you know why why is that the case you know it provides from from a point of our users and clients this continuous supervision by uh, national authorities improves customer protection in the long run right there's somebody overseeing our business and that gives some level of reliability uh, that users and clients can rely on our services and know that we are kind of dealing within specific boundaries and within a specific set of rules you know however this whole structure also could be and that's now I'm coming back to our decentralized share register that we are setting up on Algorand, you know, by by the matter of fact that I provide a verifiable, unchangeable register of all the shares that we are issuing through our platform on a on a on a trustless decentralized infrastructure like Algorand is one of them. You know, there are many others out there. But by doing this, I kind of you know, provide an extra layer of verifiability for our users because they can rely on us as a company, obviously. They can rely on the national authorities that are overseeing our business activities. But if they want to take a shortcut, they can also just look on the decentralized ledger and see their ownings, uh, you know, their ownership positions and their holdings directly, you know. And record it there in a way that it makes it impossible for us to make any changes to it, you know. And that's what I mean by verifiability. And obviously, in the long run, the vision here is that we are able to also, by not needing to be supervised and, uh, you know, like audited in a way as it is necessary nowadays, being a regulated financial entity, by having the opportunity to, you know, shift verifiability from being a regulated organization to the protocol level you know obviously i see the long-term goal of setting up a more efficient organizational structure that then ultimately is once again beneficial for our clients right because i'm capable of lowering costs and you know setting up a more efficient and streamlined operational model and um yeah i hope this shed some light on you know like sometimes i have the feeling like people think about today's you know like traditional businesses out there and then there will be like from one day to the other you know boom 
there's Web3 organizations out there and they evolved over weekend, you know, I think it will not be the case. You know, I think most of the, you know, if you are, if you are a founder or a, a business leader or in a management position, you know, there in almost every business model out there, you can identify areas where the application of, you know, where you can apply decentralized technology, mostly technology that brings verifiability into some sort of, you know, like transaction or, uh, or, uh, or uh, yeah, mostly into transactional situations that will really help to, you know, improve your own business model, improve your service offering. And what is even more important, brings you as an organization making one little first step into transforming into, you know, a, a, an, an organizational setup and an operating model that will allow you to also stay competitive in a, you know, in a, in a Web3 empowered economy and society that we are, that we are moving forward. Okay, so this is your first move, right? So, yeah. so just to recap, stage one, and I like, I love the way you put it there because it's not going to happen over over a, over a long weekend. It's going to take years, right? So you're saying there's a lot of organizations who are dipping their toe, adding a decentralized capability, and then saying to their customers, "This is just on steroids verifiability and additional comfort." of your ownership and complete transparency time stamped you can see everything it's it you can't tamper with anything so as a customer if i was a participate in investing one of your companies on your platform i can see that gives me that additional comfort right when i go to bed at night that um everything is above board but playing the slight bear case on this what's the incentive for the regulators because wouldn't the regulators say, oh, well, that's our job. I mean, we, we do that stamp and yet we're not using the blockchain, but we've got the brand. We've been around for 75 years as the consumer group in that region. That's enough. Like, are there, are there, what's the incentive for them to come on board? Because you're kind of, you're slowly chipping it away at their core value proposition, right? So like, isn't there some form of indirect kickback where where they where they're not really on board because they're like holy shit that's my job yeah i mean in the long run you you might be right however in the in the you know like if we should if we should make the transition into you know a fully trustless web3 infrastructure that fully Base, you know, is based on verifiability installed on the protocol layer through cryptographic proofs. You know, like having this long-term vision, I might agree that you know, supervisory authorities as we know them today might become, you know, like not needed anymore. Let's 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 put it like this. But having somebody who oversees you know who provides constant monitoring of the protocols you know that looks into smart contract implementation and tries to identify flaws there you know i think there will be always um a, a, you know a positive contribution and a, you know clearly 
added value from, you know, some, let's say, independent authorities that oversee even a, a, a trustless, fully verifiable, decentralized infrastructure just for, you know, just for the simple reason to maybe, you know, not identify, you know, like bad behavior within that infrastructure, but just, you know, like bugs and simple, you know, like, uh, yeah, like flaws in the implementation. So I think there will be, there can be, you know, like a long-term added value from, from, from somebody who oversees the infrastructure and uh, tries to, you know, to add value by ensuring a high level of quality on the implementation level, you know, but that's kind of, you know, like 30 years from now on, or maybe 50, I don't know, you know, I do not want to put a date on that, but, um, you know, I, I, I try to, to bring it back into 2021, you know, and what I have experienced with the, uh, mostly with the German regulator here, you know, we have, um, and it was pretty exciting. We have had a new law in Germany that was established in, um, in June this year, actually. And this law for the first time allowed that um, traditional securities, bonds, and uh, also funds can be um, um, issued and um, uh, can be reflected on a decentralized ledger. And by decentralized ledger, I do not mean like private permissioned ledgers, but I mean like real decentralized ledgers public permissionless ledgers. And I think this was a huge step that we, you know, the whole ecosystem of companies in the in the in the German blockchain space that are related to tokenization and to, you know, like really facilitating use case in the in the financial market context, you know, that was a huge achievement that we have had together actually with the regulator. You know, there has been a blockchain strategy formulated by the by the um by the by the German government in in 2019 you know and there was a clear goal to consider use case in a in a financial market uh context and um we you know we kind of followed up on that you know we got in touch with the with the secretary of finance in Germany and you know we really worked hard on making a strong argumentation that hey in the long run, the whole market is benefiting because we add, you know, some extra layer of transparency and verifiability into the security market infrastructure here. If we do not rely on centralized databases somewhere hold at central depositories, you know, but by relying on, on, on the decentralized infrastructure that brings uh, verifiability and transparency into the securities market. And, um, you know, one, one last point why, why I believe, you know, that regulators are kind of relatively or can be supportive in current times is, you know, those folks also see themselves in a the global competition, right? I mean, the German uh, legislator or regulator also looks to France, you know, and as a whole European Union, we look into China and into the US, you know, and uh, most of those folks, especially on the political level, they understand that in the long run, a functioning economy and most importantly, a functioning financial market is vital to, you know, 
economic prosperity in your country and you kind of need this to get the votes uh, when it comes to the next polls you know and that's you know i i still believe in this you know in this kind of incentive chain and at least over the past two years i you know i was in regular talks with the german regulator uh with the german financial authority and um I experienced a lot of openness and also willingness to, you know, to get this new layer of technology also being considered in the context of new regulation and how this can help, you know, to, yeah, to, to ultimately improve the financial market and the financial system as a whole. Yeah, that makes sense on a more of a, on, on an international premise, I can see how there is an incentive for the regulators to, represent that they're forward looking and and innovative in their approach right otherwise you're probably going to have entrepreneurs leave that country right and, and go somewhere where it's just simpler to execute and there's less less friction but i mean we'll come on to this big picture piece in a moment because i think your role's fascinating as an evangelizer of web3 in the tradfi markets because i know in europe it's not easy but before we come to that this is forward-looking, right? Three, four years out. Fundamentally, if you look at what you're doing right now, just trying to create a decentralized record, right, of mm-hmm. ownership, who owns what on a decentralized ledger like Algorand, right? But is the real North Star ultimately to create your own liquid market? So in essence, you've got a robust secondary market where people can trade in and out of positions, so that asset class, that private company, which is probably maybe B round, C round, still early stage, is tradable because the actual equity ownership is built on Web3. So you unlock a whole new, well, you add a whole new definition to this asset class of private companies where people can trade in and out of liquidity and you just, you just kind of change the game really because I see a number of players trying to do this and I'm always thinking, God, the North Star is basically to create a liquid market, right? Where people can trade in and out of positions whenever they want, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, sitting on Australia at a beach. Is that is, is that the holy grail of, of this type of implementation? I mean, obviously, everybody in the crowdfunding space is looking for, you know, liquidity in the secondary market infrastructure that is literally not there at the moment, right? And Obviously, tokenization and the potentials of a of decentralized infrastructure provide some really new and exciting, yeah, exciting new opportunities to really solve this liquidity issue in a in a secondary market scenario for you know small and medium companies and growth companies that decide to you know grow their business together with with investors and obviously those investors also have a vital interest uh, if they have i don't know change in their life situation to also you know sell their shares at some moment and not necessarily waiting for the ipo or for like the companies making some kind of exit scenario here right but you know if if i look into into the the secondary liquidity market topic you know i think we have to make we have to separate two things you know um, looking in the in the full blown crypto space, you know, uh, we see Uniswap and other you know liquidity pools out there, DeFi, 
is kind of already fulfilling this promise that we have efficient secondary market infrastructure that is uh, highly decentralized um, already today, you know. However, this whole DeFi ecosystem, um, as much as I love it, unfortunately, it's not, you know, solving the problems of my, of most of my clients today, right? Because if a, if a traditional growth company from the medtech industry uh, approaches me in Finland and tells me, hey, I really want to, you know, grow my business together with you, let's uh, sort out how we can organize my Series A funding round, you know, I, I'm I'm the wrong partner if I'm saying, yeah, let's do this fully blown tokenized and we set up a Uniswap contract to have secondary market liquidity straight away uh, for, for your token issuance, you know, because that's just not, we might be there in some years time, but today that's just not the right solution to them. Um, okay. Today, what I can offer them is, hey, yeah, exciting. We make a share offering. We can tokenize that one. Uh, but still, you know, I have normal investors, KYC processes. I have regular payment processes uh, in fiat, you know, and uh, just naming those two. I think that's the two main building blocks that we are currently missing in the token ecosystem um, that would really facilitate secondary market liquidity. And that's first, we need verifiable identities on 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 layer one. Um, you know, that simplifies KYC processes. And by KYC processes, I mean those that are accepted by AML regulation, you know. Um, and I think that needs to be solved um, in order to get into an efficient secondary market infrastructure. And second, um, we do need some widely accepted either stablecoin, euro-nominated, or even better, euro-CBDC. You know, looking at, at my target market, this would clearly facilitate our, you know, our secondary market capabilities if we would have the chance to have a really, you know, seamless user onboarding, investors onboarding through verifiable identities. Um, and if we have a settlement currency um, that allows uh, autonomous settlement in, uh, in secondary market transactions. Um, and does not require me to always have this painful sync process of ownership transfer on layer, you know, on the protocol layer, payment processing uh, in the traditional uh, yeah. SWIFT payment system, right? Yeah, it's got to be all connected, right? It's got to be in one uniform place and you can see how the, then it would work, right? It's interesting. I, I see that. I mean, if... <laughs> I mean, those businesses are, are, are not token-based businesses, I'm guessing, most of them on your platform, right? You might get one or two, but it, it's general equity-based businesses. But yeah. if you could tokenize that equity and then attach a, a stable coin to that where the there is no off-ramp, it's all done in, in one Web3 ecosystem, well, that would change the game because then you would have totally totally yeah, you would enable global liquidity global access yeah. a lot more flexibility you'd have more participants yeah you might have that initial kind of crazy period where people are trading in and out of positions but that would die down and you had you you still would have your typical long-term holders in early stage businesses looking to 
hopefully one day have a meaningful outcome. So, so, so yeah, that category I find fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. So, so, yeah, but, so yeah, thanks for that. We've got a, yeah. a, a great yeah, but, an overview. Yeah. Yeah, but Ray, I, I, I quickly have to follow up on that one because you know, like tokenizing equity, kind of, you know, I agree, exciting topic, and we are working on it. You know, and it's kind of, it's a, it's a nice first step into. Uh, into into a tokenized economy, you know, but the potentials here on the table are just so much bigger, you know. I mean, I will, you know, uh, to to just give you an example once again from our own business model, you know. Imagine we, you know, not just only tokenizing our own equity as a as a company and really make it, you know, being, you know, today we already have more than seven hundred shareholders, so I'm happy, you know, we are kind of already strongly decentralized at least in our shareholder structure but let's imagine we have an investor token that has a full token economy attached to it that goes beyond just pure ownership in the company you know that for example if you bring an exciting company that does a next equity funding round with us um, you get um, some extra of those community tokens allocated to, to to your wallet you know this once again, can be a step to, you know, somehow decentralize my my whole sales activities, right? I'm mm -hmm. currently doing detailed due diligence processes on the companies that raise money through our platform, you know? I could make this DD process that involves lawyers, that involves, you know, financial analysts. Also, you know, distribute those tasks to the community and then you know, compensate for those tests once again in community tokens, you know, and, um, you know, following this whole idea, you know, you can, you can do so much more and you can generate so much more involvement of your users and the community and the whole ecosystem around your company. If you, if you consider and think about, a, you know, like a more holistic token economy that you, you know, that, mostly will be specific to the to the business model and the you know the specific situation of the company and the problem it wants to solve but now i just gave two examples of our business model i'm you know i'm almost 100% sure that you know in almost all business models out there you could identify comparable you know tasks that are currently internalized that could be you know externalized and brought to the community and to the to the users if you if you put the right incentive structure in place right and that's where 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 smart token economy uh, becomes necessary and where and i think that's the important point uh, important point here you know i i told you i come from peer to peer right and i think you know everybody who came from peer to peer uh, the peer to peer world you know we we kind of You know, maybe we were a bit, you know, like over-optimistic in the beginning, you know, because we were always hoping that, you know, our general idea of how we, you know, facilitate for 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 for, for good services to, to the community will somehow be appreciated, you know. However, the problem is peer-to-peer -peer compared to centralized structures is always more complex and has disadvantages because yeah you kind of you miss mostly miss resources uh you miss efficient uh decision making processes you know and all of that uh was not in place uh when when the 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 whole general idea of peer to peer came up and i think that 
decentralized technology and more importantly, you know, a smart incentive layer that can be installed through uh, uh, a good token incentive model for the first time allows us to, you know, bring peer-to-peer business models kind of into a good competitive situation compared to centralized business models. And that's why I find, you know, this whole incentive, uh, you know, the, the whole incentive structure that you can lay out through a smart token economy, such an exciting topic, you know, on top of the, yeah, the new technology of, uh, you know, cryptographic proofs and everything. I think those two really have to come hand in hand to, yeah, to, to get into a long-term transition of many of the business models that we see out there uh, today. It makes sense. So, so just to unpack that further, if you were to launch your own investor DAC token, right, which makes perfect sense, the value of that token is basically index exposure to every company which has been invested in it. Is that in essence the the accretive value to a token holder? Is that the is is that the vision you have where if I hold a token I've got indexed exposure to every company within your yeah. kind of I'm not I, I wouldn't say so because this would mean that we also you know get invested into each and every com- company that uh, that does a fundraising through our platform. Uh, today that's not the case you know okay. and this would more follow like you know there would always almost be like a tokenized fund right i mean you kind of invest into an exciting portfolio of startup companies i mean that also could be considered but my my approach of a, or my vision of an investor uh, debt token would be more one of you know um, a token that reflects the the whole infrastructure that is necessary uh, and the value that is, you know, kind of uh, the, the value of the infrastructure that you require to first acquire good companies that are willing to do fundraising through our platform, doing a careful due diligence process for those companies, getting into a nice campaigning and fundraising, you know, like also doing uh, roadshows, for example, you know, like, to me, this investor debt token, if you would call it like this, would more reflect the intrinsic value of this whole infrastructure uh, that is necessary to bring exciting companies and uh, investors that want to have impact through their investments together in an efficient way. Okay, makes sense. So it's kind of like a yeah, it's a productivity capability you're adding to. Um... To the, to the network that you've built. So brilliant. Well, well, thanks for that context. And so now looking at big picture, and this is interesting, obviously you're working in the Nordic region, working in Germany. Obviously I know in Europe, it's an education, right? Winning hearts and minds, trying to get organized on ramp, on ramps with TradFi, traditional finance organizations. Do you spend any time there? Obviously you're an active participate participant in the web three movement so do you do you have a good sense of where we're at in terms of tradfi getting web three and then executing next year on this because it looks like in north america things are moving fast where you've got traditional uh tradfi banks making moves already in preparation for next year what's the lay of the land yens in the Nordics and, and Germany in terms of 
traditional financial institutions adding Web3 capability, be it kind of basic custody services or, or, or maybe something deeper? What, what does it look like right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good question. I mean, if we, I would, you know, I'm currently in Frankfurt and, you know, visiting some some friends and folks from, from traditional finance here. And, um, you know, we, we have worked hard over the past two years to really, yeah, bring a good knowledge transfer into traditional finance when it comes to applying decentralized technology within their own business and servicing model. And um, so what I'm observing in the German market, um, first, there was a lot of, you know, uh, yeah, that's not relevant and let's ignore this is just a trend and a scam and it will go over. And this kind of ended in 2017, 18, I would say. And then there was kind of the first ones considering, hey, this might be a new technology that is here to stay, you know, and we should start dealing with that. Um, That was then probably one or two good years for big consulting firms out there uh, selling some projects on, hey, let's define your digital assets and blockchain strategy for the banks. And most of them realized, hey, don't really know how to bring this into, you know, like, really then getting into, you know, building real applications based on those strategic ideas and kind of, you know, was probably a good sell for the for the consultancies, but not really for, you know, for, for traditional finance itself. And what I, what I observe today is that there's a true transition coming, at least in the German market, because we see the regulatory framework for digital assets to emerge and to become more and more formulized we have crypto custody services being a regulated financial service in in germany we have managing crypto share registers being a regulated financial service in germany as of today and um, we see more and more banks mostly depot banks and banks that come from the asset management uh, or that have strong asset management businesses running to really yeah, look deeper into mostly crypto custody in the first step, I would say. And that kind of also makes sense from a bank's point of view, you know, saying that we have been a reliable, you know, custodian or custody partner for institutional and retail clients for for decades, you know, let's kind of bring this trust that we have built up also into 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 the world of the uh, of uh, of um of digital assets so i think that's kind of a smart move but you know that's kind of let's also face reality if you decide to build up a full-blown crypto custody business it's not just only about having some consultants supporting you you really banks are hiring now they are building up teams most banks started with like one head of digital assets normally you know some fork that kind of explains the blockchain to the senior management but now they really, you know, the whole topic moves into the more operational units of the banks. I see more and more hiring uh, in, uh, yeah, like in the risk management units, in banking operations, in the in the in the tech departments of the banks, because they realize 
this technology is here to stay and it will impact our overall operating model. And um, yeah, that's kind of, to me, it's a positive development. We see true adoption nowadays and it's more than just, you know, having some high-level PowerPoint slides that try to formulate yeah. uh, what we might do in, in three year, years' times. But it's true investments happening at the moment. And obviously also some exciting collaborations between uh, fintech companies and, um, and and organizations from the decentralized space uh, with, uh, with traditional, traditional banks and asset managers. What I believe is uh, the right step uh, to kind of, you know, combine strengths and uh, improve knowledge sharing um, to, you know, really, yeah, uh, spread the good word of decentralized technology also in the, you know, in the old-fashioned bank towers, <laughs> what we right. could do. So is it fair to say, Jens, that that's great pro- progress? And, and I'm guessing you're one of the community members there trying to advocate and beat the drum for this transition so is it is it fair to assume in q1 and q2 of next year we're going to see some big names within dark and nordics launch officially launch kind of retail services where there is custody of digital assets and and maybe some form of light yield offering mm-hmm. do you see that in mm-hmm. the first half of next year yeah, I mean, I think we have to separate here a bit. I think if if we look for you know services like crypto fiat ramp ups, if we look into crypto trading for for retail clients, I mostly see like the huge online brokers and the kind of challenger banks to to be the first one providing those services uh, on the on the retail side. Uh, that will bring more mass adoption here. So number 26, just after their uh, huge 800 million funding round, announced that uh, providing crypto investments, direct crypto investment opportunities and custody will be core to their strategy after they left uh, the US market. You know, focuses now on Europe and setting up digital assets capabilities there. I know that Bitpanda is, you know, now working into traditional finance. So, you know, I think we will see those focusing on the on the retail side. What I find more exciting and where I'm more kind of also personally involved is the institutional investor side. And mm-hmm. if you if you look into the 20 biggest depot banks in the German market, and you know, like the big money lives in uh, on the uh, within the fund industry. And, you know, like institutional on the institutional investors side and out of the 20 biggest depot banks in Germany, when it comes to assets under custody, you know, they represent 99% of the total market share here. Um, 10 have announced that they are currently in the application process for the crypto custody license. Four more have announced that uh, they are considering uh, applying for the license and five or six didn't respond. And I think this is kind of a groundbreaking uh, outcome of this survey because it shows that literally half of the market of traditional finance when it comes to, you know, like custodian services for institutional clients is moving towards crypto custody services. And once again, what I said, you know, if you apply for a new 
license with the German BaFin, and that holds true for all regulatory authorities all over the globe. You know, um, this is not like this means significant investments into your own organization. That's not something you do kind of like a side project, you know, that really requires, you know, building up teams, hiring typically new MDs because you do that normally in a, in a, in a subsidiary you're setting up, you know, that's like defining new processes, getting new IT providers onboarded. So those are like, you know, heavy projects that, require a lot of resource allocation to them. And um, that's why I'm pretty excited and uh, looking forward to 2022, uh, what we will see there on the, on the, mostly on the institutional investor side and what traditional, traditional banks and custodians will, will, will provide on that side. That's interesting. So 50% of the big players within the institutional space have kind of announced they've they've made applications. Yeah, and another twenty five considering it. You know, that's kind of mm. I would call this a sustainable trend, right? <laughs> Great. So, 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 where do you think that leads to? Obviously, they'll be offering some form of treasury management capability to God, all those wonderful SMBs in Germany. <laughs> There's some amazing ones there, right? Everyone in the world knows about those hidden gems. What is, is that what they're trying to offer? Some form of yield product for a lot of companies who might have a lot of cash on their balance sheet and are, and obviously that, that, that money's melting away in terms of purchasing power. So is that phase one offer an entry level um, yield offering or exposure to say the top five digital assets to enable that kind of on ramp and kind of first exposure to this asset class is that what it looks like next year in germany yeah i, I mean i see kind of two general trends and probably the first one if, if we just look on the institutional investor side now for for a moment i think the biggest trend that that i'm seeing in the german market at the moment you know institutional investors typically invest through funds right so they are setting up a fund or they directly invest into funds, uh, let it be huge pension funds, life insurance, whatsoever, you know. And there has been um, uh, uh, an update to, or like a change to uh, existing legislation in, in, in Germany recently that alternative investment funds are allowed to allocate up to 20% of their total investments into into native crypto, crypto assets. And um, obviously... That is kind of a relevant new news to the market because existing fund structures now are capable of kind of, you know, get a little proportion maybe, uh, but if they want to, up to 20% of their total assets invested directly into crypto. And obviously uh, custodians and alternative investment fund managers and the whole industry now is adapting and building up structures and processes to make those reallocations into crypto assets possible. And I think this will also help to, you know, see a significant amount of institutional money actually flowing into, into, uh, into crypto, what I find extremely exciting because it will just help the market and it will, you know, help those projects to 
um, continue growing. So I think that's one major trend. And so just the other one, there to recap for our audience, that's yeah. your really traditional um, capital allocators. So pension funds, kind of sovereign level funds now have the ability to make up to a 20% allocation yes. within the bucket of alternative assets. And within that bucket, digital assets is, is front and center. Yeah. Mm. I mean, that's kind of all alternative investment funds up to 20% into digital assets. And I think that's, a, yeah, like provides completely new opportunities here to uh, that will help to, yeah, as I said, see significant inflow of institutional money from Germany into, into, into crypto. And yeah, that's one major trend I'm seeing here in Germany at the moment. And the second one is actually tokenization of securities. And I think, you know, like if we now look into, you know, typical investment strategies of, you know, large institutional investors, if they now say, hey, let's have, I don't know, a single digit percentage of our portfolio invested into crypto assets directly, most of the, you know, the rest normally is held in, uh, in securities, you know, bonds and, and, and shares. And as I said, um, new law in Germany today already allows to bond to uh, to to tokenize bonds. You know, so um, traditional financial industry also looking closely into this. You know, kind of we're now getting prepared to allow direct investments into into crypto assets, but we also at the same time do the necessary steps to also be capable capable to serve tokenized securities because if you set up a custodian infrastructure for uh for for crypto assets it's kind of the same infrastructure also works for tokenized assets in most cases okay so just right? pausing now this is interesting yeah. so the tokenization of some of the traditional asset classes securities traditional bonds in a tokenized form factor, that tokenized form factor can then be used as collateral to deploy in the digital asset market. Is, is that what you're describing? Mm, kind of. It's more like that, obviously, you know, if today most of the institutional money obviously is invested into traditional assets yep. and uh, if you if you look into like the more more risk averse institutional investors like huge pension funds and life insurance companies it's uh, mostly allocated into into fixed income products bonds and yeah. as i said those bonds nowadays can be tokenized in germany we do not see that many tokenized bonds especially we do not see them in the large uh, uh, you know for large cap companies because they kind of, they feel, at the moment, they still feel more comfortable with the traditional setup of issuing a bond, you know, having like your book runner, your your investment bank that you're trusting in, you know, having the security traditionally issued and distributed through the security market infrastructure to them feels more, you know, like more comfortable and it's kind of also, you know, they they associate lower risks with, still using the traditional financial market infrastructure here but smaller companies like that's we just recently tokenized 
security for one of the companies that uh, did a funding round through our platform in Germany. You know, that's kind of for, for small and medium-sized companies, this becomes more and more common to actually use this new opportunity to not use a traditional bond to, to, to refinance, but to use a tokenized structure. And um, I think tokenization in the first step, yeah, we will see it mostly, most adoption on the, on the side of small and medium-sized enterprises. And, you know, everybody knows that those are kind of the backbone of the German industry and the German economy. And I'm pretty excited that those companies through tokenization will win better opportunities to get, you know, less dependent on traditional bank financing and get a better and more efficient direct access to the capital market and nothing else is tokenization providing here, right? It provides an easier, more efficient and streamlined approach to issue a bond And if you issue a 1 million or 1 billion uh, bond issuance, the, the way you structure it and the way you do the issuance uh, relatively to the total volume is not that important, right? It's kind of, it's some basis points up or down, but it doesn't really matter. But if you just issue a security uh, or a bond um, of total volume of 1 million or 2 million euros, you know, Structuring costs and distribution costs become really relevant at, at short notice, you know, and that's where tokenization and relying on a more efficient structuring and distribution approach, um, yeah, has the biggest benefits. And that's why, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to see that uh, in the beginning, mostly small and medium sized enterprises will be the one that benefit most from the uh, opportunities that come with tokenizing bonds and securities. Brilliant. So, so things, it's great to see things are moving swiftly in, in the Nordics and Germany. So, so just to wrap up, Jens, sorry, we've covered so many exciting points today. Going into next year and the year beyond, on, on the big picture, what really excites you around Web3? What are, what are some of the things you're keeping a close eye on and, and kind of really energizes you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, as we have discussed so many finance topics now, I think maybe starting with the uh, with the DeFi CFI uh, topic quickly. What I'm expecting for 2022 is that we see, you know, we see adoption towards DeFi and traditional finance. We see regulators kind of coming up and shaping the regulatory framework for digital assets. However, I still expect and i don't know if this will be in 2022 or maybe later but i still expect some kind of clash and conflict between cfi and defi because this whole adoption that we are seeing by traditional finance moving into the defi direction is always you know it still follows the old approach of we have a bank that is an intermediary here that is regulated, you know, although the regulatory framework is adjusted and the technology applied is somehow, you know, decentralized uh, to, to some extent, it's still not following the full idea of, uh, of DeFi. And I think we will, we, we kind of see this transition and that those two are moving closer to each other, but I think they will never become one, you know, and at some moment there will be this kind of, you know, eyes opening moment of, Hey, 
we kind of had some, you know, transition here, but only to some point. And now what's the next step, you know? And I think this will also be the moment when traditional finance will try to do a lot of lobbying against DeFi once again and where we will see kind of, you know, that things might turn out to be a bit more, you know, controversial and be be discussed a bit more, you know, that discussions are heating up there. So this is something I, I expecting on the DeFi CeFi side to, to come at some moment and maybe even in 2022. If I if I look into into Web3 generally, um, I think we are just, you know, seeing so many exciting projects out there that really, you know, uh, on on the layer one side uh, that, you know, carry some huge capabilities and potential to really facilitate Web3 applications that probably will not come to, to mass adoption in 2022, but to wider adoption at least. And the the areas I'm mostly looking into, you know, as everybody is already looking into NFT, I do not have to look there as well that much although i'm doing on a daily basis but what i think where where the whole concept of decentralized applications and collectibles and um and the whole idea of a metaverse and all of those are components of a you know of a holistic web3 vision where they will apply first is in the gaming industry that's my expectation because you know the target audience you're addressing there has some generally speaking, good understanding of new technologies, you know, uh, you have a, a handsome and, uh, you know, good user base from that point of view that does not necessarily requires the best user experience in the first step in order to get into adoption. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a community that is kind of used to live in... in uh, And, and act in a, in a digital space, let's say, that are, you know, we have traded World of Warcraft gold on eBay 10 years ago, you know? It's kind of the whole idea of collectibles and, you know, having digital assets is also extremely mm -hmm. natural to this community. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to see, you know, like more adoption of decentralized technology in the, in the gaming space, as I believe, yeah, some exciting... Uh, exciting opportunities are are there, and I, I I also imagine it to be one of the areas where mass adoption could come first. And um, yeah, that's that's my outlook into 2022, I guess. Well, Jens, it's been awesome having you on today. Um, just for our audience, where where can people find you? Is it Twitter, LinkedIn? What's the best place for people to reach out and? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. It's first name, last name, Jens Siebert. But you can also find me on LinkedIn. I'm quite active there as well, trying to, you know, keep in touch with, as I said, traditional finance regulators and, you know, kind of really building those bridges. Um, LinkedIn is kind of the right place to to do that, to kind of, you know, not just only being in the in the in the decentralized community, but also trying to stay in touch, you know, with incumbents and discussing with them together where we, uh, how we, how we can make this exciting transition into, you know, uh, a more decentralized web that allows users to really 
you know, own the assets uh, they that belong to them, you know, to really have transparency and verifiability in the services they are using, you know, and not being captured in an ad-based uh, business model that, you know, probably was never intended to be there in the first step, but uh, actually it's just there, you know, and I have the feeling for the first time we really get the right tools at our hands to, yeah, um, make the next big and from my point of view necessary phase transition in uh, in the in the web possible and yeah extremely excited to to see this one happening uh, rather sooner than later right i share your same sentiment well jens it's been awesome having you on and, and let's do part two hopefully in the summer my friend and hopefully speak next year thanks ray for having me cheers Bye. And that is it, everyone, for today's episode with Yen Siebert. If you enjoyed today's episode, hit that subscribe button. If you love today's episode, share this episode out with a friend or colleague who you feel like would be deeply impacted by today's episode. Again, if you want to download a free copy of the Definitive Guide to Connected Innovation Intelligence, where we explore what Connective Innovation Intelligence is, who it's for and how the world's top disruptors are using it to win in hyper competitive markets, then head over to patsnap.com or click the link in the description of this podcast to grab your free copy today. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. We'll be back next week with another amazing interview. Until then, continue to embrace your childlike wonder and stay curious.